0: To just touch and just touching base with everybody, we've got an amazing lawyer who's actually of counsel to um, our comp firm, uh, Cynthia Santiago, who's gonna be talking about immigration, gonna be talking about um, some criminal work and really is kind of building that network and we'll talk about it as soon as we get going, but she's gonna talk a little bit about what are the common things that come up with our clients for immigration, some of the ways you deal with it, um, how you know we can when you have somebody who has maybe some immigration issues, how you can help resolve those. Then also I'm in trial with Corinne Katz, who couldn't be on here this morning. But um, Dustin in my office, me, Corinne are trying a case in Ventura, and there's some really interesting stuff that happened yesterday. And I don't care if the defense hears this because I want to ask what people, because You know what? It's like Billy Jack. It's like, I'm going to put my right foot on your face and there ain't nothing you can do about it. And that's exactly what I'm going to do with the defense. But I would like to hear kind of a focus group kind of perspective. So as soon as we get to one more minute, can everybody hear me pretty well so far? Yes. All right. I'm looking at, I'm looking at a lot of friends here. How's that? Mossy, what's it like to be the smartest guy in the room, bro? Not that smart, Mike. You're the smartest guy in the room for (laughs) sure. So Mas, among others, just passed the Nevada bar. Congratulations, big man. Thank you, sir. Yeah, proud of you. And I see Dustin, who's, uh, 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 that I work with uh, in the firm, um, Dustin, we're going to talk about some of the issues that came up in our, uh, in our case. So let's get going. So um, <clears throat> as people come in, please just admit them. So welcome, everybody. Um, I miss you guys. It seems like uh, for one reason or another, we had to move it a few weeks. And so we're back. Um, you know, this has always been about talking about legal issues, but also talking about life and um People say that as I've gotten a little older, I've become more of a life coach. I don't like that, I'm more of a positivity influencer. And um, that's what we do. But uh, today I'd like to kind of start by introducing uh, Cynthia Santiago. So Cynthia uh, and Gina kind of started communicating, uh, became friends. Then we learned more about Cynthia and her husband Carlos What a power couple they are, the execution, the knowledge, uh, amazing. And what Cynthia specializes in is immigration and criminal. And really, how many times have we come up with somebody who says, Are you a lawyer? Can I? And you're hoping it's a PI case, but it's not. It's a family law or an employment or wage and hour immigration criminal. And so we joined forces with Cynthia for all of those issues about immigration and criminal. So Cynthia, I wanted to to say thank you. (laughs) She's uh, uh, an amazing lawyer and I wanted to introduce her, have her tell us a little bit about who she is and a little bit about the immigration issues. And she said, there's like three or four things that always come up and I bet we're all gonna recognize this. We'll spend about however long we need, 15 minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, if you guys have some questions as well, and then at the end, uh, the amazing Rita will send you her information. So uh, listen and inquire. So please go for it. Great.
1: Thank you. I'm literally one week shy of my nine year anniversary as an attorney. I've done so many types of cases, been in deportation defense. I've stopped deportation buses, I've gotten my clients back from the border, I've gone to the border, assisted hundreds of people in asylum, hundreds of DACA recipients, I also do affirmative cases with um, people applying for residency or citizenship, especially with complex criminal issues, I have a criminal defense background as well, I do both. Uh, My main niche is working with undocumented folks that have criminal issues that arise and they need an attorney that understands the deportation effects of those cases. So I'm very pleased and thankful that I have this opportunity. I um, have definitely have seen the gamut of the different types of cases that exist with immigration. And I just wanted to talk briefly about some of the issues that arise or questions I get from colleagues, especially about immigration. One One of the main questions I always get is, I know someone who's undocumented. They've lived here for many years. They pay their taxes. They have a good record. Can they get status? And unfortunately, the path to residency isn't that easy. The path to residency requires us to know how they entered the United States, what kind of family they have here, immediate relatives. Do they have citizen spouses or parents or children who are adult children that are citizens? And then we have to face with a bar, and typically if a person entered the United States unlawfully, so they came without any visa or any permission, and they're in the United States for over a year, they face what's called an unlawful presence bar, and they're forced to return to their home country for 10 years, and this is a process where If you have an experienced attorney that knows how to spot these issues, if we can find a way to get them a waiver and they can waive the 10 years before they leave for their interview, then they easily can come back in two weeks. But if you're not working with an experienced attorney, unfortunately, folks get stuck and they're stuck for 10 years abroad. And it's very disturbing and heart-wrenching to hear the stories of folks that have talked to attorneys that are not experienced in this area. So that's one of the um, main questions I always get, is there a path to residency for people that have lived here for many years? And unfortunately, it's not that simple. An attorney like me will do a very thorough intake on their work history. Maybe we can have some type of a visa granted because of work environment issues or they've been a victim of a crime, especially if they've been injured in an accident, and it was some type of criminal behavior, then we can tie that into a victim's visa and get them a, a status here. Um, also, it's just things that arise with um, getting somebody's status is just determining um, what other grounds exist in that type of case. and And a thorough intake is usually what I can spot those issues with. So I'm more than happy to help anybody that's on the Alder Talk, anybody that's listening, uh, you know, talk over any cases that you have and then see what your clients would need in that type of situation. Um, but I um, I also urge you to do this because I've also heard from attorneys that they don't get their clients assessed or they're not prepared and their clients are picked up by immigration or they pick up a criminal case and then they're deported and your case is pending, your PI case is pending, but your client is deported, it's very difficult to get them back. So it's always a great practice to get that in line, get a strategy in place have a backup attorney available for those types of emergencies. And then that way, you know, you can have a successful case. Um, Another type of question I get often with undocumented clients is whether filing a case, a a case in civil court, an um, injury case, or whether getting treatment is going to affect their future immigration status. And generally, that's not the case. Um, with undocumented clients, we have to always be conscious and think about how this person has lived under the shadows. They've lived in the shadows. They've, they are folks that are afraid to make any types of claims or demands because they feel like their immigration status is at risk or they'll be deported. So it's also crucially important that if you have a client that does not have status, that they talk to an attorney so they're comfortable and they're, they're feeling safe about the process and know that it will not affect their future immigration cases. And that's something that, you know, I just always urge practitioners to be conscious that we're dealing with folks who have been living in the shadows afraid to come out and report something. And so this is an opportunity for you to have, you know, an attorney to back you up or it's an attorney to talk to your client and on the onset of the case and get them more comfortable with being able to open up and get the treatment that they need on their cases. Um, Lastly, I think the, the main point that I've been hearing lately has been whether there's an immigration reform, and unfortunately, there is no immigration reform yet. There are several bills that are happening that are in Congress right now, such as a bill that would give residency to the DREAMers, DACA recipients. TPSers, people that have temporary protected status, and farm workers. And that bill is currently with Congress and it's supposed to be voted on soon, but there is no uh, immigration reform or bill for the 11 million undocumented individuals here in the United States. And so I just really encourage folks that if if you have a client that's undocumented and maybe you start hearing that they're applying for something with a a notary especially notary publics are very notary publics are very like common that undocumented clients go to services with basically immigration tax preparers and it's very important we protect the community because right now we've been seeing an incline in unscrupulous individuals targeting and preying on undocumented folks and trying to get them to believe that there's some type of a new law or a new status, and that's not the case. So thank you, everybody. And I'm more than willing to answer questions or any concerns. So before
0: I open it up for questions, I want to make a couple of comments. So if you don't know this, it used to be the law that if your client was undocumented, the defense would say, well, their future lost income is in, if they're from Mexico, in pesos. And many times you would have to waive all of these claims because otherwise the immigration status was relevant. Well, the law changed, I don't even know what, five, six years ago, that it makes it not only irrelevant and not admissible, but any requests in discovery or depositions for immigration status is absolutely protected, not admissible, not discoverable, and if anyone asks that in a depot, you simply say, objection invades the right to privacy, don't answer the question. It is a sure win, same with discovery. And it doesn't, it, even if you make a claim for lost income, for example, as long as you can prove the income wages that have happened or have an expert that can talk about future wage loss whether their immigration status is no longer relevant and you can, you can put on your loss of income plan, right? But the one thing I wanna ask you is about the victim visa because yes. I've had cases where I've had catastrophically injured people who really can't get anywhere, but they're not legal. And is there a process by which we could, if we have a client who's not legal, but we need them to stay here, that we can go through that? So with the victim's visa in particular, there's um,
1: if we can tie it to some of the criminal conduct that the behavior that led to that act that was criminally uh, reckless in some way, then we can get the police to certify a document called the U-Visa certification. And we file that once we have that signed that they cooperated in this investigation, even if the charges were never filed, even if the person was never convicted, as long as we have a police report with the police authority signing off on that, we can get them on a path to what's a use Does it system. have to be,
0: our clients have to be a victim of a crime, not just negligence?
1: It, it has to rise to some of that. Yeah, it has to rise to criminal conduct. So is,
0: is there anything when someone is injured due to negligence, not criminal behavior? Is there any exception or or um, way of using that, or is it only a, as far as you know, the criminal behavior for
1: so the use the UV sets? You have to arise to some type of criminal conduct that's considered like an assault, or you know, in some way um, very like aggravating. It Got could it. be, and it could be mental. It could be physical. It could be other forms that are not. So, down you know.
0: bouncer that beats up your client yeah, or something.
1: Yeah, like that. yeah. So, has anybody had that happen before? <laughs> So I think that that the, the point, though, would be to get an assessment to see if they have other avenues. And there are definitely humanitarian grounds that we could use, um, especially if the client does have status, but their family member doesn't have status and they're facing a deportation, then we can use humanitarian grounds because they're taking care of their family member. Right. So that would be another route we could go.
0: So I want to open it up to any questions. We'll spend whatever time we need on this, but... Again, um, the information for contact for Cynthia's office, uh, Rita will send around. She is also of counsel to um, the Zapunt Alder Law and what a resource. And I gotta tell you, if you have any questions, she is a wealth of knowledge. You just gotta reach out by email, text, call, and you can get information. So let me open it up. Does anybody have anything that, yeah, uh, David? Yeah, so do I understand correctly that Immigration status, whether documented or not, is not relevant and is an issue of privacy. Correct. That's right. And is a is a wage loss claim based on the wages that they lost here, or their home, or would it be based on what it would be in their home country? No. It used to be that that's what they would they would claim, but now it's whatever you can prove. And remember, wage loss. <coughs> there's a lot of ways to skin that cat. Obviously if you have W-2 tax return type stuff, even though you don't have to give away the tax returns, W-2s are really important, right? Have we ever had a client who says, last year I lost a million dollars, and you look at their tax return and they told the IRS they made 2,500 bucks? That's a tough case. But many times people get paid in cash. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And one of the things I've done in that is you hire a voc rehab person who doesn't talk about how much money they make, but their earning capacity and how this injury has reduced their earning capacity by X percent. So let's say they're 30% earning, they've lost 30% of their ability to earn money. And then I say, what's an average salary in the, in the workplace for a you know high school education, no high school, college. And let's say that's 30 grand a year I say, okay, you lost 30% of 30 grand a year in the future. And that's how you you can do that sometimes when you don't have all of the uh, a big past documented earning loss. Does that make sense? Yes, thanks. Right. And you bring up a point too that
1: many undocumented workers use somebody's social or a made up social. So that would be also a triggering point for you to know if the person has status or not. If they say, I don't have a social, I've been using an I-10 or some, you know, I've been using somebody's social that they should get an assessment done because
0: it's all important. As kind of a follow-up with that, I will say that, you know, most people say, well, if you don't have W-2s or tax returns, whatever, waive your lost income. Um, we don't want to let people know that you work under the table that you get let me just ask everybody on this. Have you or someone close to you ever worked under the table and been paid by cash? Everybody has. Everybody in the jury has. So while I'm not saying you make a multi million dollar all cash loss, don't knee jerk and say, oh, well, they, they they were paid under the table, therefore they're tax cheats, and we could never put that in front of a jury. These are real people who are trying to survive. And many times the cash job is what allows them to have the job and to survive. And don't discount jurors from understanding that, right? It'd be great if you hit a CEO who had a CPA tax return for every dollar they ever made. But 99.9% of the time, it's somebody other than that. And so I just wanted to say that if you guys need to talk about it, obviously yeah. talk to her, feel free to reach out to me. Last couple of questions, anybody and have anything? I,
1: just another point about the working conditions too would be that there are trafficking visas or the um, employment-based visas for the victim's visas as well that we could look at and explore if at some point they've been um, you know, denied lunch wages and all that. So.
0: Right. anybody else? Cynthia, you'll give us your contact information? Yes. So um, what I'm going to do is Rita, who has everybody's email, is going to, after this is over, will email everybody Cynthia's full name, contact information, et cetera. Okay? Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Appreciate it. (laughs)
1: All right.
0: So I wanted to, for, to start kind of what do you call I'd like to start my remarks by thanking law works so we're here at, in Orange County. Um, Resident Punam have just talked today you know torque law, They created law works here. Um, as most of y'all know we're opening a second law works in Los Angeles at our new building in Sherman Oaks and. What an amazing facility. And it's gonna be the same type of uh, facility in Sherman Oaks with a pickleball court on the roof, by the way. Um, But thank you. And what this is is basically an amazing space for anyone who wants to be a member month to month. There are different levels, but what it gives you is not only a community, but every one of these offices has their own plugs, their own ways of, uh, of working in that office, you have meeting space, you have a slack community. And I know it sounds like I'm selling it, but I'm, I'm not trying to sell it. I'm trying to inform people of what an amazing benefit this is, especially if you don't have anything but a virtual office. This is for And I don't know for 100 bucks a month, 200 bucks a month, you have a place to meet people, which is really an amazing, and in about, what gee, about two months, three months, you're gonna have this in Orange County and Sherman Oaks as well in the Valley. So really amazing. Next, I wanna talk about how beautiful this uh, art knife from Florida is, just gorgeous. And you see the Damascus steel, and somebody described Um, A relative of mine in Louisiana, my cousin Shane described, he says, this knife looks like you and Gina. Mike, you're that mahogany handle, and Gina's that razor sharp Damascus steel blade, and together y'all are a killing machine, (laughs) and by the way, I gave Gina a shout out in my trial because one of the witnesses was named Gina, and I'm talking to her, and I go, Gina, that's a beautiful name, Gina. So anyway, so let's talk about the trial because some really interesting things have happened yesterday that I want to put out there and I'd like to get your advice, but also to kind of tell you about how stuff like this works. So um, I'm in trial with, uh, with Dustin and um, I asked Corinne Katz, who has been such an amazing contributor. She came to my focus groups. I said, why don't you associate in as co-counsel and now you can do your first trial and get some, some credibility. And she did her first witness yesterday. And um, so when we get a huge verdict, it's gonna have Kareem Katz's name on it and she's been a wonderful contributor. Um, but this is what happened. So we're in department 22 in Ventura. If you wanna listen to it, the, the judge did not allow court TV to film it but they have a live stream audio. If you log on either Alder Law on the Instagram has a direct connection, or if you go on to Ventura Superior Court, you type, you click Department 22 and you can hear the live proceedings. I wanna tell you about two things that happen, right? Um, so I have two older clients uh, the woman, Sally, is in her mid-70s, uh, beautiful, diminutive Filipino woman, hardworking, been married to my client for 17, my, her husband, 17 years. Catastrophic injuries, really serious injuries. And the defense lawyer does on cross. Karen takes her on direct, does a great job. And the defense lawyer, yesterday afternoon, comes in and starts grilling her. And he pulls out these four or five photos of Subrosa and that are still shots of her purporting to do things she says she can't do. She handles it fine. She's like, no, I can do that. That's not a big deal, whatever. But he's grilling her, right? And then he switches gears and he pulls out a medical record right after the accident. He says, you told the doctor you're 90% fixed and you have and when can you go back to work so you're fine and she says no i lied to the doctor you're a liar she goes well, yeah my son in the philippines died six months before and i send money to my grandson and i have to work i can't so i lied and said whatever i needed to do to try to work and she's dragging herself to the work i'm like okay okay we keeps grilling her, but he can't get in this piece of evidence, the report, and the judge gets frustrated and is taking us back outside, and he takes us outside, and we're talking and we hear a commotion, and my client in front of the jury, without us there, has a panic attack on the stand. Paramedics come in yesterday afternoon. Um... I really we adjourn court for the rest of the day. So that's what happened yesterday. And I wanna talk about the two different things. And I'd like to hear y'all's thoughts, but also tell you a little bit about the law. So first of all, um, let's talk about the panic attack. Uh, one of the people said, well, isn't that a mistrial? First of all, it is absolutely not a mistrial one. If a mistrial would be, well, we don't like the plaintiff reacting too strongly to being hurt, then you'd have a mistrial every time it was going well for the plaintiff. But secondly, the law is clear that you, as a lawyer, cannot do things that instigate situations of a mistrial. In other words, the questioning that you do, you got to live with, right? If, let's say you're picking a jury and you do something, you do some, uh, or you know, you do something wrong, you then can't ask for a mistrial based on something you just did. Right? So that's not an issue. I'm not concerned about that, nor was it ever raised, nor will it. I can't imagine it would be because it's, it's just not even an issue. I want to talk about sub-rosa. Okay, so what is sub-rosa? Sub-rosa is basically surveillance. Okay, now I knew that they had sub-rosa because in the supplemental form rods they listed three different times that they went out and they filmed my, or they surveilled my clients, right? But I know my clients are telling the truth. I mean, my one client has never gotten out of a wheelchair and the other, they're catastrophically injured. I wasn't worried about it, but I made a mistake because normally when I start a trial, I always say, what is the law? That if you're going to show any sub rosa, I need to see everything you have before we talk about foundation. So what happened yesterday was he starts pulling out these screenshots of grainy photographs and he got a couple of them in because my client who's truthful says, yeah, that's me and based on what I'm seeing, I think that was around such and such a time. So here's the thing. There's a doctrine in the evidence code called the doctrine of completeness. And it's kind of along the lines of if you're going to cross-examine someone, let's say on an article, right? You can't say, I'm going to read to you one line and then say, see, that that disagrees with you and not show them the rest of the article, which is the context. And it may be a complete misrepresentation. So you have to have the whole article. The same goes with sub-rosa. Right? If you filmed 50 hours and you show one photograph out of 50 hours, don't you think that's relevant? What about the other 49 hours and 59 minutes where they're screaming bloody murder and you just happen to get the one time? And I suspect the reason these things are grainy is because these are still shots from video and they... And imagine if you're limping on the way up, you take a still shot, you don't look like you're limping, but they left out all the other stuff before and all the stuff after. So ultimately, defense lawyers, I'm going to shove it up your butt. However, we're going to have this hearing on Tuesday, and I think we're going to get all of this. But so I wanted to to tell you that, but... The defense immediately said, this is work product, attorney-client doctrine. And there is case law that is clear, that shows that it is not attorney-client and not work product. And at a minimum in discovery, you have to identify what you've done, who did it, the dates, the times. Okay? And then before they use it or when they use it, you are then entitled to either have them lay foundation by calling the the person who did the surveillance or at least get all the information. So I am on Tuesday gonna demand that they bring the surveyor in. And then you ask questions like the other 50 hours, didn't my clients look like they were in a lot of pain? Or how is it that you have 50 hours of crap and you showed one photograph and it's not even a photograph Let's take a look at the other video. Oh, I deleted it. That's great cross-examination, right? But I just wanted to say also, because these issues come up, when you ask for form log answers, most surveillance happens at the, the DME and it happens right after they answer form rods, And so, If you don't send a supplemental form log, and remember in discovery, you get to send supplemental logs twice in discovery. So you do all your discovery, you don't have to resend more questions, you can basically say, please supplement your past discovery, and bring it up to speed. And that's what happened in this case, and that's when, after they answered form logs, they then went out and surveilled my client's. And then in supplement, they had to disclose what they've done. It's a, it's universal. And any of y'all defense lawyers, former defense lawyers, that's what y'all do, I get it, right? The other big surveillance time is in trial, right? I'm 100% certain that there's someone in the parking lot filming my clients, 100%, right? But it's fair fight that if they wanna show one thing, they gotta tell us the whole thing. Does that make sense to everybody? So I'd love to hear examples, thoughts, ideas, just about those two things and any other suggestions on how to deal with it. Anybody? Come on, guys. I've had sub Hurt me three times or so in trial to a point where one time I'm like, you're a liar, you either settle or dismiss this case, or I'm withdrawing in the middle of trial. You son of a bitch. How would you, how dare you bring me into this case? But most of the time, and I'm a hundred percent certain in this case, it is misleading. And I'm not gonna say everything on tape, but I have in the photos found stuff that show me and prove but these are still shots from video. Anyway, so I think in the end, it's gonna it's actually going to be beneficial. But any thoughts about um, the panic attack? Obviously, the concerns are that people think that, you know, she's either one, had a panic attack that's real because she's been horribly impeached, or second, that she's faking the panic attack. I know for sure she's not faking it. But I will say that, The one thing that happened um, that everybody heard when I wasn't in the room, she's when she started to have started it, she goes, Oh my God, I need, I need my Xanax. So, but frankly, she's had such catastrophic injuries and mental issues that I'm not surprised she has Xanax. So any thoughts, anybody? I Look, I'm an open book and frankly, I don't, If somebody on the defense is watching this, please watch it again. Anybody got any comments? Yeah, David. On the sub-Rosa question, in terms of when that photo occurred, uh, would it also be important, I guess, to know some of the sub-Rosa that occurred long after that and and what does that sub-Rosa look like? And this sub rosa that they showed uh, was earlier this month. Mm-hmm. But there's other issues, right? The photo they showed was my client carrying some dry clean or like a, two jackets um, from her front door to her car 20 feet away. And so, you know, so this company that has all this stuff that they didn't document even one word for two years but they can spend tens of thousands of dollars in 50 hours staking out my client's house, but they can't even do one thing to try to remedy this issue. Eh? Sounds to me like priorities, But again, some people get offended. You know what, I'm going to acknowledge that the defense has every right to defend themselves, but they've got to be fair with all of us. And they don't get to say, well, we don't do anything here and all we're gonna to try to do is become exculpatory, but we're not gonna acknowledge anything that shows us having to take responsibility. If you're gonna do this, you gotta do this. Right? And that's kind of the that's kind of the argument. And then I started chiding Corinne I'm like, Corinne, you're one one for one, your first witness is she has a panic attack. Come on, Corinne. She's like freaking. But she actually did a remarkable job, um, handled herself really well. And um, so any thoughts, guys? Interesting, huh? Very interesting. So the trial is going to resume on Wednesday. We're dark, and then there's a holiday. I expect to rest next week. Then they're going to uh, put on their case. It shouldn't take very long. So not next week, but the following week, I expect to close. Um, And we do have a punitive damage claim. Uh, In my opening, I had presented between the two, uh, a compensatory uh, award that we'll be asking for. It's about $26 million. um, And we're gonna see, and if we get a a punitive finding, I will be asking for more than $26 million. And that's kind of where we're at. So I'd love for y'all to feel free to tune in. Uh, Department 22 next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Fun stuff, guys. It's interesting. You know, I, I haven't been in, tri- been in that one little day and a half trial a few months ago, but I haven't been in a, in a big trial in at least with COVID, what, a year and a half? And you don't realize, um, and Gina's, come and a bunch of friends of mine have come and if you guys want to come there's room for about six people in the back but you don't realize when you are in trial you think you're cool and collected and you know remember the biggest the greatest skill of being a trial lawyer is heartbeat control right so you're controlling your heartbeat you're chilling but at the end of the day i forgot how exhausted you are and how sore you are because you don't realize that you have been like this the entire day, even if you've done nothing, you are tense and tight and you do that day after day. Like today, I'm not in trial and this weekend, I mean, I'm gonna be in the damn jacuzzi all weekend because you don't even realize how tense your muscles are, Uh, even when you're not doing anything, right? You're kind of thinking a million miles an hour. So I wanted to just put that out there, um, and then I wanted now to open the floor. Does anyone, we haven't seen each other in a little while. I love that we're finally getting back. Staples Center's opening. Dodgers were opening last night. Um, I read somewhere that maybe June 15th, we're going to pull the masks off and maybe have uh, social distancing not be an issue anymore. Uh, I hope everybody's doing well. I'm really looking forward to it. And by the way, as soon as social distancing is out, all of y'all are invited to the Casa Alomar post-COVID dance party, which and y'all have to bring it. Um, and that's it. So if there's nothing else, if anybody wants to say anything, yep, David. Mike, just out of curiosity, in the courtroom, are you required to wear masks, and oh, yeah, is that pretty difficult and exhausting? It is. And in fact, the defense lawyer, the main one, uh, was sanctioned by the judge after three times not wearing his mask properly. Uh, He got sanctioned 100 bucks two days ago. In fact, in the jury, one of the jury questionnaires said they were pissed. I don't think they're on the jury, but they were aggravated because the defense lawyer wouldn't wear his mask properly while he was questioning the jury. And he just won't learn and he keeps doing it to a to the judge being exasperated and said, if you do it again, I'm gonna sanction you even more. So quit it. And uh, now he's got two masks on. <laughs> but, but a good question. So the 22 is one of the two big courtrooms, which by the way is the identical courtroom where 10 years ago, I got the biggest verdict of my career, which at the time was the biggest verdict in Ventura. That same courtroom, which I'm like, okay, something's up. But uh, it's big enough where they could fit 20 people in. So we did two panels of 20 jurors and we had a questionnaire. So the first day we brought in them, we did a mini opening. They filled out the questionnaires, 20 of them. We spent the, the, the lunch break looking at the questionnaires and then we questioned them and did cause challenges and then sent them home. Next day, we did it again with a new panel of 20, mini opening, do the questionnaire over lunch, question, cause, sent them home. And then we did peremptory challenges and we got 12 plus three alternates. And then they called those people on Monday to start jury trial on Tuesday. And that's how it worked. While we're in the courtroom, any jurors in the courtroom, everybody has to be masked. But the judge said to the lawyers, I can't ask you if you're vaccinated or not, but if everybody was vaccinated, we wouldn't have to wear our masks in the courtroom. And I said, Your Honor, I'd like to volunteer that I am vaccinated. And so, and then everybody did. So when we're not with a jury, we can breathe a little bit more. But when a jury walks in, the masks go on. And by the way, remember, every time a juror walks in, out, you stand up, unless your clients are in a wheelchair, which that's the only exception. And it just, just does not, it just it's beyond me when the defense sometimes stands up and sometimes they don't. I'm just like, what are you guys doing? You know, there's so many basic things that you can do to be a better trial lawyer from shining your shoes to not having crap all over your desk to being polite to standing up when the people that have given their time for this actually walk in, be respectful and stand up. Those basic things mean everything, especially when you don't do them or wearing your mask properly. They may have, if that juror was on the, they may have lost that juror because he can't put his mask over his nose. These little things make a difference. They make a difference. Anything else? Mike, right. uh, quick question. AJ. Hey, uh, has your expert testified in regards to uh, your client's limitations? Not yet. Uh, well, they could actually come in, and clear that picture kind of if you show them the picture and they could explain, for example, I'm in a lot of pain. My kids running towards me. I'm in a lot of pain. I, I do uh, choose to pick them up, but I pay for it later. You know, you could like, for example, you could pick up those uh, two closer and stuff for like a minute or 20 steps. You have to pay for it later on. You go home, you take the Advil, you're in a lot of pain. And your doctors could say that. So I am not going to call any live physicians. Okay. Um, My main expert was not available. So I took his depot by video. They both had a lot of treaters and I'm going to play some of the treaters. But frankly, I mean... The, vid, the photos don't really show that much, in my opinion. I mean, they don't show that she is doing something she said she couldn't do. And she owned it. She's like, yeah, I can do that. Of course. I'm doing it right there. I, that's what I can do. The problem is I can't lift my hand all the way above. I can certainly put it here. So I don't really have a witness that's going to address all that, nor I mean, I'm just, I'm not gonna do it. So the rest of my case really is I have the other plaintiff who are gonna finish uh, the the my client who's on the stand, Corinne's gonna finish that. One other witness who's who lived as a tenant in their home, um, video of the doctors, and then I have a life care planner and an economist, and then I'm probably gonna rest. I have done all of the major defense witnesses at the beginning of my case. And um, that's kind of where we're at. I mean, that's what's gonna happen. Yep. Good luck. Thank you. Anybody else? Guys, I love y'all. Thank you very much. I hope that you found this informative Rita We'll be there. She'll reach out to everybody with the information. And I can't wait to start seeing y'all more in person Start thinking about what your dancing shoes are going to look like and uh, have a great weekend. See y'all later. Thanks Mike.
1: Thanks Mike. Have a good
0: one.